Welcome to this verse-by-verse Bible teaching from Calvary Queen Creek in Arizona with Assistant Pastor Darrell Logan. We hope you're blessed by listening. Romans 10.17 says, Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. For more information, please visit calvaryqueencreek.org. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your Word. We thank you for your Holy Spirit. We thank you, Lord, for... Uh, just allowing us to be here. We thank you for all the simple things in life, those things that we overlook and, and, and we tend to leave those things out and not be grateful for them as we are for the quote unquote big things. And so uh, what a blessing to be able to get out of bed and uh, just to eat and, and, and move and some people, you know, able to exercise all these things, drive and so forth. Lord, we're so blessed and help us to never take anything for granted. Help us, most of all, to never take you for granted. And Lord, as we spend time in your word, may, our, may we be single-minded. May our minds, our hearts be focused on you. And I pray, Lord, uh, that you would help us, Lord, to understand your word. Give us fresh insight. And I pray that as the one who has the privilege at this time to, to teach from your word, that you would help me to rightly divide your word of truth. And so I do ask for a fresh filling of your Holy Spirit that I would decrease and you increase and be glorified, not just in this place, but all across this campus tonight. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 So we are in Genesis chapter 6, and the title of the study is Stand Out. Stand Out. And so once again, um, I just want to review how the book of Genesis is divided. Uh, maybe this, is, this will be one way to help you to remember that. Um, just remember four and four. Um, and I mentioned this a couple times already in our previous studies, but I'll mention it again only because we are coming upon a new section. Uh, but just by way of reminder, um, you have two main sections of Genesis, four and four. Four major events, chapters one through 11, and four major people, chapters 12 through 50. And so the four major events are the creation, the fall, number three, the flood, and then the dispersion. Those are the four major events in the first section of the book of Genesis. And then, like I said, in the second part of the book of Genesis or second section, the four major people through chapters 12 through 50 would be Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. And so uh, tonight we are on the third major event in Genesis. So still in the first section of the book because we are within the first 11 chapters. So the third major event, of course, is the flood. And we won't see all the details about the flood. We're just going to see preparations for it. Uh, But we'll get more into that, Lord willing, in our um, upcoming studies. Uh, But I do want to begin um, in verse 1 of Genesis chapter 6. It says, Now it came to pass when men began began to multiply on the face of the earth, and daughters were born to them, that the sons of God saw the daughters of men, that they were beautiful, and they took wives for themselves of whom, of all whom they chose. And so um, these scriptures here have... Um, been the cause of many debates and people have uh, different views um, of these verses as far as who the sons of God uh, refer to as well as who the daughters of men refer to. And so I'll share 
uh, three uh, views, uh, but most people, just to let you know, focus um, in, on the last two views I'm going to share. And so a lot of people end up in, those, uh, in the camp of one of these last two views. But uh, the first one, I want to get this one out the way because this is one of the views, is that some, some people see the sons of God as royalty or rulers who were possessed by fallen angels marrying poor women. And so these rulers abused their powers and they took whatever wives they wanted. And, and so that's one view when it comes to who the sons of God are or who the daughters of men are. So that's one view. And so we get into the second one I want to share, which is uh, one of the um, major views that uh, people tend to find themselves in. And, and so another view as far as who these sons of God uh, referred to and who these daughters of men refer to is that, first of all, they, they believe that the sons of God referred to fallen angels or demon-possessed men or, or perhaps demons or fallen angels that have taken up on themselves a human form and then they marry daughters of human beings. And so they say that the motive for this, and which would be a valid motive, is that Satan wanted to pollute the genetic pool of the human race of mankind in order to stop or prevent the seed of the woman from coming. And if you're not familiar with the seed of the woman, look back in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. So I'm not going to read it for you. I just wanted to throw it out there. Once again, Genesis 3.15, that's where you're going to see the reference once again to the seed of the woman. And that seed with the capital S. And that refers to the Messiah. New Testament refers to the Christ. And both Messiah and Christ refer to the anointed one. Only difference between the two words is that one comes from the Hebrew, which would be Messiah, and the other one will, be, will derive from the Greek, which would be Christ. But they both mean anointed one. And that speaks of the seed of the woman. Satan wanted to pollute the genetic pool of mankind. And so that's one motive uh, that they would share, those who are in this camp. And there are some strong points for this view. And so I try to be fair when it comes to which you would call controversial or uh, hotly debated verses. I try to be fair in those views and present both the strong points as well um, as perhaps objections to the view or weaknesses in those views. And so um, the phrase, first of all, and this is a strong point for that view. So the phrase sons of God is used in other parts of the Old Testament, for example, um, to refer to angelic beings. And so we see that in the book of Job, Job chapter one, verse six, Job chapter two, verse one, and Job chapter 38, verse seven. And so sons of God is used to refer to angelic beings. So that will be a strong point for whomever holds this view that the sons of God um, refer to fallen angels or perhaps demons or fallen angels that have taken up on themselves a human form. And so that's one strong view or strong point for that view. And so another strong point for that view is that we do see that angels were able to appear in human form. For example, um, we saw angels appear to um, Abraham in human form. And so we know that they are able to do that. Of course, those were God's angels that appeared to Abraham, uh, but these would be 
what we're talking about here in Genesis 6, fallen angels, according to this view. And so that's another strong point to that view that there's, there's examples of angels appearing in human form. Um, another example of a strong view is that uh, the translators of the Septuagint, which would be the Greek version of the Old Testament, they translated the sons of God as angels of God. And so that will be a strong point for those in that camp. Um, And then in the New Testament, uh, some would look at Jude 6, and Jude only has one chapter. And so when I say Jude 6, that's the verse. And so that um, speaks of angels who did not stay within the limits of their position of authority. Uh, But it says they left their habitation or where they belong. And so that's interpreted as supporting this view, one of the, once again, main views that some Bible scholars have, and maybe some of you have. Um, the scriptures also tell us that um, these fallen angels um, are in everlasting chains in a special hell, so to speak, or literally Tartarus, uh, which was not an ordinary place of departed spirits. But th- these are where some of these demons are. They're chained up now and they're reserved for judgment. And we find that in 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 4. And so the scriptures do talk about that there are some demons that are not running wild like right now. So a lot of demons, we don't know how many demons are, are, are running around on this earth right now. We don't know. All we know is that Satan persuaded a third of God's angels to fall with him. And so we refer to them as fallen angels, demons, um, you know, evil spirits, so to speak. And so... But there are some, according to 2 Peter 2, 4, um, that, that are chained now. They're in Tartarus. They're, they're, you know, in this special hell reserved for judgment. And, and as you continue on in the book of Revelation, you'll see that there's going to come a point where some of these demons are going to be released upon the earth. So you do see that. And so um, just so you know, Satan is not in hell. <clears throat> not right now. A lot of demons are not in hell. Yes, some are locked up. Some of the worst kind are locked up. We see that, again, 2 Peter 2, 4. But not all. That, of course, would explain some of the evil that's going on. And part of it is us. We're to blame. We have the sin nature. We use our free will. Some people use their free will to do evil. And then you have demons. You have Satan, um, you know, still not locked up yet. But it will come. Their time is coming, and he knows that his time is short. But then there are some objections to this view. And one objection that's used is Matthew uh, chapter 22, verse 30. In Matthew chapter 22, verse 30 is an objection to this uh, sons of God being the fallen angels view. Um, it says that for in the resurrection, this is Jesus speaking, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels of God in heaven. So that will be an objection to this uh, view that I'm sharing with you at this point. Um, And so some use this scripture to show that angels don't marry nor are given in marriage. Therefore, these fallen angels, although they're fallen in a fallen state, they're demons, um, that they don't do that either. But then there's some who are not in this view who would counter that with, Well, Jesus, in this verse, was speaking about faithful angelic beings. He was speaking of angels of God in heaven. 
which it does say it's angel of God's in heaven, of God in heaven. It does say that. Um, and then it, and then they would say that uh, as a rebuttal, that this is not referring to what we see here in Matthew twenty two thirty. This is not referring to the rebellious or fallen angels, uh, because the wicked angels or the fallen angels they don't care about obeying God. They don't care about following this. What we see here in t- Matthew twenty two thirty, they don't care about obeying God. Period. So that that's how some will counter that, and so I've seen that one. Uh, but then another objection to this view of these sons of God being fallen angels, marrying human women, the daughters of um, humans, that if they created giants or the mighty men or the famous men, then why were there still giants? Or uh, if you look behind that word giant, it says um, Nephil or Nephilim will be more than one or fallen ones. Why were there still Nephilim or giants after the flood? which you see in uh, Numbers chapter 13, verses 31 to 33. And so that's how some would, I, I guess, rebut that. You know, was there a second invasion of fallen angels after the flood, some would ask? Of course, we don't, you know, it's kind of, um, it, this is debated verses for a reason. And so um, we really need to dig into this and really pray about it and meditate on it. Uh, But the third view I want to share with you, and this is a major view as well, just like the one about the sons of God being, you know, fallen angels going into uh, or marrying human women. Just as that being a major view, this is a major view, what I'm about to share with you. And so this third view is that the sons of God refer to the descendants of Seth who called upon the Lord. And we studied that in Genesis chapter four, verse 26. And so they would say that um, the sons of God are descendants of Seth, uh, the godly line of Seth, and they marry evil women among Cain's descendants. And we saw Cain's descendants in Genesis chapter 4, verses 17 through 24. And so a motive for this would be, once again, that the devil wanted to mess things up. He wanted to entice the godly line of Seth, the sons of God, to mix with the ungodly line of Cain, which in this case would be the daughter of men in this view. And then, of course, get them to abandon their devotion to the Lord or to God. And so this is the third view, a major view. The sons of God referred to the descendants of Seth, the godly descendants of Seth, and then these daughters of of men will refer to uh, the ungodly line of uh, Cain. And so there are, just as I pointed out uh, with the previous view, there are some strong points to this view, but there are some objections that have been raised to this view. And I'll share those with you as well. That way you can research it for yourself. You can be a Berean for yourself. You can pray about it. You can dig into it. it it's not going to affect your salvation. God, that's not the first question God is going to ask you. What is your view of Genesis 6, by the way? Uh, but I do think it's fair, and I do think it's responsible for me as, a, uh, as, as somebody who has the, the honor of being able to share the scriptures. I, I think it's responsible of me to share these views that, that people have, especially if they do have uh, some good points to them. And so a strong point for this view is that 
the preceding context before Genesis chapter 6. If you look at uh, Genesis chapter 4, like I said, it talks about the descendants of Cain. Um, It it does touch upon, um, you know, Seth. And and then he had a child or a son named um, Enosh, uh, by the the way. And it, it says that then men began to call upon the name of the Lord. So we see that. We see more of the descendants of Seth in Genesis 5. And so the preceding context would uh, be a strong point for those who hold to this view. And so uh, just in short, those who hold um, or who hold to this view, they see Genesis chapter 6, 1 through 4 as just simply following the previous chapters. And it's talking about intermarriage between the two lines, between the godly line of Seth and the ungodly line of Cain. And so that will be a strong point. Looking at the preceding chapters, you can you can see some things there. Um, Not only that, but another strong point. If you look at verses three and five, which we haven't gotten to yet um, in our study in Genesis six, it clearly speaks of the wickedness of man. It doesn't speak of the wickedness of angelic beings or fallen angels. It specifically speaks of the wickedness of man. And so if it were uh, the angels who sinned, then why was the race of man to be destroyed would be a question that is asked. And so uh, that will be a, a strong point for those who hold to this view. And so those are some strong points indeed. And then another point, another strong point, would be that godly men are also called the sons of God in other places of the Bible. Maybe not exactly using the same um, Hebrew wording that we see in Genesis chapter 6, verse 2, uh, but we do see some other examples like in Deuteronomy 14, 1 and Psalm 82, verse 6, Isaiah 43, verse 6. Uh, those are some examples. Hosea uh, chapter 1, verse 10, uh, New Testament, uh, Matthew uh, chapter 5, verse 9. And so that is a strong point for those who hold this view that the sons of God are talking about the godly line of Seth uh, mingling with the ungodly uh, line of the uh, other daughters from from Cain, so to speak. And then another strong point for this view is that God states that the judgment was coming because of what humans had done. And you can see that in verses six and seven. In Genesis chapter 6. And so these are some strong points here. Um, And of course, as promised, I I need to share and be fair to share the objections to this view. And so some would ask, those who don't hold to this view would ask, then why were all the Sethite men godly and all the women of Cain's lineage ungodly? Is that possible? Could there have been a godly person here and there in, in, in either line? Or an ungodly person in, in Seth line, could there have been that since it's on an individual basis? It's pretty much what they're um, hinting at. And so that's a fair question. Um, but another objection, you know, some would have to this view, and, and these are in the form of questions. And so it would be why should such a union between godly men and ungodly women produce giants if they're both human and one is godly, one ungodly? They, why would they produce giants? 
And so we see, unfortunately, and it shouldn't happen, but we see people who are unequally yoked today and they're not producing giants if they have offspring. And so some people would, um, you know, would bring up this question if they have a different view from this. Or they may ask, why would this union lead to universal corruption and violence if it's just, you know, two humans? Maybe they're not equally yoked, you know, whatever the case is. And then some would bring up the fact or the question in objection to this view. Well, if the sons of Seth had married the daughters of Cain, then why did not the writer clearly say so? But why, why, you know, is it not as clear as it could be? And so some, once again, who has an objection to this view would bring that up. And so, uh, as you can see, I've I've (laughs) meditated upon this a lot, read through it a lot, um, looked at various Bible scholars, and so to speak, and, um, you know, did quite a bit of research. And and I remember I've been back and forth in both camps before, before because it's just it's just not. Uh, clear, they have good points to both views, but whatever your view is, remember that the main thing is that these relationships, they appear to have involved sexual perversion with men taking any woman that they wanted. And so it involves sexual perversion. And of course, this was not pleasing to God. So whatever your view is, you want to take that out of it. And so if you want to know where I stand on this, I, I, I agree with Pastor Chuck Smith. I don't know if he changed his views um, later on, but, but I do agree with what he said. This is quote. He says, this is one of those areas of scripture I have filed away under waiting for more information. He says, each view, each view has advantages and problems. And he says, I frankly don't know which interpretation is correct. So I am just waiting for God to solve the puzzle. And so I'm, I'm in, you know, I'm right there. And so I understand that, and I'm right there right now. And so um, if you want to argue with me either way, I'll just look at you and smile and say, okay. <laughs> and then I was like, okay, good point. You know, I'm not going to argue. You know, that's not going to send anybody to heaven or hell. But Pastor Chuck, of course, uh, I believe he passed away in uh, it was 2013, and so he's in heaven now. And so I'm sure he's not thinking about um, you know, Genesis chapter six anymore. He's, he's just enjoying the presence of the Lord. And so I just wanted to throw those things out there to you. I wanted to be fair to those views. I wanted to be responsible as a Bible uh, teacher. And so, no, I, like I said, I've been in both. You know, I bounced back and forth before. So now, um, because I don't want to be wrong and have to correct anything later, I'm just going to stay in the middle and just pray for more information, pray for more clarity. But You have the information there. Continue to pray about it. Uh, Verse three, it says, and the Lord said, my spirit shall not strive with man forever, for he is indeed flesh. Yet his days shall be one hundred and twenty years. And so, in other words, it can be stated, my spirit shall not strive or remain or shall not contend with man. And one translation would say abide in mankind forever. For he's flesh, he is corrupt, one translation would say. Speaking of man, he's mortal, yet his days shall be 120 years. And so God's spirit, in other words, will not contend with man forever. Yet the years 
man, it says, shall be 120 years. And so I think I know what Pastor Jim was doing by giving me all these hard scriptures. He sent me to Genesis. And so here you have another scripture that could be taken a couple ways. And so speaking of the 120 years, first of all, uh, it may refer to the normal human lifespan after the flood. And so some people do hold that view. Um, Or it may refer to, and this is a second view of these 120 years, it may refer to 120 years before the judgment of the flood. And so in this one, I do have a lean towards a particular view. And so I do lean towards the 120 years before the coming of the flood. And so, so he's saying that, that look, you, you have 120 years, in other words, to repent. This flood is coming. And it just shows you, I mean, that, you think about it. Maybe it wasn't a super long time for these people who were living 900 years and so forth. But that you, that's a long time for us. So 120 years, giving people a chance to repent pretty much. And so we see that God is long suffering, something that is also taught in the New Testament, because in Second Peter uh, chapter three, verse nine, it says that the Lord is not slack concerning his promise, because there's some people who are mocking they were scoffing the fact that Jesus is going to come back. And there's some people who are scoffing and mocking that notion today. And it's truth. He is going to come back. But some people think he's slack, that he's slow concerning his promise to come to come back. But he said he's not as some count slackness, but he's long suffering toward us. God is patient toward us, towards mankind. Why? Because he's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Oh, he's long suffering. Yes, of course, I would love for the rapture to take place even right now. That would be so awesome. But it's going to happen in God's timing. And God has given people an opportunity to repent, to have this change of mind, to turn from their sin and to turn to him, placing their trust in Jesus Christ. The only way to salvation so long-suffering, but just like here, as we've seen, just like there was some type of limit here before judgment will come, there is a limit to the time of salvation. There is a limit. There's a limited amount of time that the Spirit will attempt to woo people or convict them in order to lead them to repentance. Scriptures tell us that it is the goodness of God That leads us to repentance. So if you had that opportunity to repent, if you had repented, praise God for his goodness. And he's so good right now that he's given people an an opportunity, even right now in all the evil that's going on in this country, in this world, still giving people a chance to repent. But back to the study. And so it seems like He's given 120 years before the judgment via the flood. Verse four, it says that there were giants. One translation brings it to the surface and speaks of the Nephilim. These could be men of stature, notorious men. Um, A lot of people um, translated as fallen ones. So there were giants on the earth in those days. And also afterwards, when the sons of God 
came into the daughters of men or mankind and they bore children to them. And those were mighty men. They were mighty warriors who were of old or long ago. They were men of renown or great reputation or fame. These were famous men. And so many translations or even if you look behind the word giants in Hebrew, you, you'll see a form of the word Nephilim. And, and so there are two views, of course, of who these giants are. Some will view them as literal giants, which mean that their physical stature was big. And then some would uh, speak uh, in the sense that, um, that these are spiritual giants in the, in the sense that, spiritually speaking, their, their wickedness was big. And so some see it that way, or it could be a combination of both, that they were giants um, physically and spiritually and sin, in, in the sense of their wickedness. They were giants. And we see the wickedness in Genesis chapter 6 as we continue to read and study it. And in verse 5, still in Genesis 6, it says, Then the Lord saw that the wickedness, he saw that the depravity of man was great in the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. One translation says that every inclination of his human mind, of the human mind, was, was evil continually. Another translation says that everything they thought or imagined was evil. But one thing we should take from this verse in verse 5 is that the Lord sees all the wickedness on this earth. And so we think we're pointing out something to God in our prayers. God, do you see this? You, you see what's happening to me. You see what's going on in this country. You see what's going on in the state. You see what kind of laws they're passing. You see, Lord, what they're putting on Twitter and, and YouTube and so forth. So we think that we're showing God something. But, but the thing is, the Lord sees all the wickedness on the earth. Yes, even today, just as he did back then in Genesis chapter 6. In fact, Proverbs 15 verse 3 says that the eyes of the Lord are in every place, keeping watch on the evil and the good. So even, yes, in our bedrooms, even in those private moments, when we think that we're getting away with something, God is watching. The scriptures tell us, whether it's in our bedroom or whatever it may be, the locker room, He's observing how we speak in the locker room for those of us who used to be athletes, who are athletes. Those of you on the job, in the break room, he sees what's going on. He hears those discussions. And so not only does God see everything that's going on externally, but he also sees what's underneath. Because he saw that every intent of the thoughts of man's heart was evil continually. God sees all and he's going to deal with it one day. As we continue in verse 6, it says, And the Lord was sorry, regretted that he had made man on the earth. And he was grieved in his heart. And so the Lord said, I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth, both man and beast, creeping things. These are creatures that crawl and birds of the air. For I'm sorry or regret that I have made them. And so wait a minute. Didn't God in 
chapter one say that everything was good, was very good? Didn't God say that? Didn't God know everything? Didn't God know this was going to happen? That man would sin, that Adam and Eve would sin, and that things would go out of control seemingly in Genesis chapter six. Doesn't God know that? Does he know all these things? Yes, he does. And so this really did not surprise God. He is an eternal being. He lives in one big now. The rest of us who live in time, we go through stages. For us, there is a first, second, third, fourth, fifth. There's a beginning and an end. With God, there is no beginning. There is no end. Everything is one big now. Everything he sees is as if it has already happened. And so this did not take him by surprise what he sees in Genesis chapter 6 upon this earth. And so what's going on here? What's going on here is that God is reacting to man's sinful behavior as it happens in time. And so in time, he's reacting to what's going on, although he already knew what was going to happen. This is a God who appropriately reacts to sin. He is always angry with sin. But he is always loving, doesn't change. He, and so he is, he is reacting as, as the earth, as the people on the earth is going through this. And so, yes, God is transcendent. He is above everything. He's separate from everything. He's way above everything else. But he also involves himself within his creation and here. He's reacting appropriately to sin on this earth. Uh, But I want you to notice who God is blaming here. Because he said, I would destroy man. And so he doesn't blame angels here. He is grieved by man. Those who were made in the image of God. And God is even grieved by what he sees today. It causes them great sorrow by what he sees today. People made in his image, although the image is marred by sin, we're still made in the image of God. We still have some form of his image. He's grieved when he sees people made in his image. Live the way they do. Curse him the way they do. Not cursing them maybe verbally, but even in their actions. And so, yes, he's grieved by what he sees today. But do you know that even believers, you and I as believers, do you know that we can even grieve the Lord? We can cause him sorrow. Ephesians 4.30 says, and do not grieve or bring sorrow to the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. So we are sealed by the Holy Spirit. Under the new covenant, the New Testament, the Holy Spirit in a born-again believer, a true believer. He does not leave. Jesus says that he'll be with us forever. That's what Jesus said. And so we're sealed by the Holy Spirit. If we're sealed by the Holy Spirit, that, that, that's like a stamp of authenticity that you're truly his child. But also when you talk about putting a wax seal that the kings used to you know, or people in authority used to put on the envelope or, or a scroll or whatever it is. They put the wax on there and they, and they put their seal on there. Maybe from a ring or some kind of stamp or whatever it is. 
it, it ensures the safety of the contents inside. And so we're sealed by the Holy Spirit. We're sealed. But we can bring him sorrow when we're disobedient. And, and so I need to ask, is God grieved by what any of us are doing today as believers? Have we been thinking anything, viewing anything, living a certain type of way to where we would grieve the Holy Spirit who indwells us as true believers? If so, would encourage you to confess, to repent, get back in step with the Lord. Verse eight, but Noah found grace. He found favor in the eyes of the Lord. He found favor in the eyes of the Lord. And so. Many of us, we too have found favor, this, this unmerited favor. We, we don't earn it. We found it in the eyes of the Lord. You see, it is by grace that we were drawn to Jesus because the scriptures tell us that we can't come to the son except the father draws us. So it is by grace that we're even drawn to Christ. It, it is by grace that that God would send a missionary or another or brothers or sister in Christ to share the word of God with us. It's by grace that God will send an evangelist to, to share the gospel with us, to give us that opportunity to hear that gospel message, that life-saving message. It is by his grace. Scriptures tell us that it is by grace that we are saved through faith. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8. It's not of ourselves. We can work for salvation, then we, we would be able to boast. But Jesus did the heavy lift and he did the work on the cross. So salvation is a gift. It's by God's grace we're saved. We receive it by faith. faith. And so it, it is even by grace that we are saved. It is even by grace that we are allowed to serve the Lord through the, the work of the ministry. Even the apostle Paul understood that, that by the grace of God, I am what I am. And by the grace of God, you are what you are, being able to be called a child of God, being able to serve him in the Sunday school ministry, being able to serve him in men's ministry, Saturday on a Tuesday night, or maybe you're serving in the children's ministry, Spanish ministry, or whatever ministry that may be, home fellowship. It is by the grace of God that God allows us to do what we do, because I tell you, if you knew everything about me, you wouldn't want to shake my hand. Oh, but God's grace, God's forgiveness, God allows us to partner with him in his work. And so just like Noah, many of us who are believers, we have found this grace in the eyes of the Lord. In verse nine, it says it switches gears a little bit. It says this is the genealogy or the family records of Noah. And Noah was a just, he was a righteous man. He was perfect in his generations. He was perfect or blameless um, amongst his contemporaries, those who lived in the generation he lived. And it says that Noah walked with God. In other words, he lived in habitual uh, fellowship with God. And he begot three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. We talked about them in the previous study. But first of all, one thing I want to point out about Noah is that he was righteous which means that he had a right standing with God. And that, of course, can only come through faith. 
Galatians chapter 2, verse 16 says, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ, even we have believed in Christ Jesus that we might be justified or declared righteous by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, not by trying to be good are you declared righteous or are justified in the sight of God, but it is through faith. For by the works of the law, no flesh shall be justified. And so Noah was righteous, which implies that he trusted God, he had faith in God. Another thing we can point out about Noah, this man of God, is that he was blameless. Of course, he sinned, but overall, the overall story of his life is he was blameless. There was no obvious sin in his life that anybody could point to. But the third interesting thing about him is that he lived in close fellowship with God. Just as one of his ancestors did. And one of his ancestors is Enoch. He walked closely in a close fellowship with God until the Lord, of course, took him. And what I shared with you last time as a picture of the church being raptured to be with the Lord. In verses 11 and 12, back in Genesis 6, it says that the earth was or also was corrupt. It was depraved before God and the earth was filled with violence or wickedness. And so God looked upon the earth and indeed it was corrupt. It was the base for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And so people were just running wild. There was violence. There was injustice. There was wickedness everywhere. Does it sound familiar? Some think today that, oh, you know what, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm living my life the way I want to. Every, you know, I haven't been judged for it. I, I haven't died. I'm living in sin, what you Christians call sin, and I'm not dead yet. I'm, 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 I'm having the best time of my life. There's no lightning, lightning. I haven't been struck down yet, some would say. And some would even think that God must be okay with their lifestyles because they haven't been struck down. They haven't been killed. They haven't been judged yet. So maybe your God doesn't exist. Or or could it be that God is being long-suffering? Could that be an option? Or or maybe even worse, or that's good. So I'm not going to say even worse. That's good that he's long-suffering, but... I'll just say something that's horrible, that's bad if somebody's in this position. Or could it be that God had given them over to a reprobate mind, a debased mind? They, they begin to do things, Romans chapter 1, they begin to do things that, and it just comes as a normal flow in their lives. Sinning just is normal, no conviction about it at all. And they think that, that God is okay with it. Haven't been judged yet. I'm, I'm good. I feel happy. Could it be that they've been given over to a debased mind? Amen. Verse 13, and God said to Noah, the end of all flesh has come before me for the earth is filled with violence through them. And behold, I will destroy them with the earth. So God is about to do something about evil. This is something that people have been begging for. With all this evil in the world, what, have your God, what has your God done about it? Well, he's doing something about it. Then when they read the scriptures and see what God does about evil, 
oh, your God is so hateful, but you want him to do something about evil. And people who say that, by the way, need to be careful because that means that he shall wipe you out too. Why does God do something about evil? Oh, it's coming. But for now, be thankful that God is long suffering and being gracious and merciful to you, giving you a chance to come to him. But what we see that that's about to happen is what a righteous and holy judge does. He addresses evil. And in verses 14 through 17, you see the plans being made for this upcoming flood. He tells Noah to make yourself an ark of gopher wood. And gopher wood is, you know, we don't know exactly what kind of tree it is. Some think it's pine or cypress. He says make rooms or stalls or pens. Some will say nests. Or compartments in the ark and cover it inside and outside with pitch or tar. And this is how you shall make it. The length of the ark shall be 300 cubits. And it says it's width 50 cubits and it's height 30 cubits. And you shall make a window or some type of hatch or roof. Some say skylight for the ark and you shall finish it to a cubit from above. One translation says finishing the sides of the ark. To within 18 inches of the roof. New Living Translation says, leave an 18 inch opening below the roof all the way around the boat. And then set the door of the ark in its side. You shall make it with lower second and third deck. So lower, middle and upper decks. And behold, I myself and bring in floodwaters on the earth to destroy from under heaven all flesh in which is the breath of life. Everything that is on the earth or the land shall die. And so we see that God is precise with the design of the ark that he told Noah to build. And so the design of the ark matched its purpose. It was to it was not to necessarily travel through the water efficiently, but it was supposed to be stable and have the greatest possibility for capacity to hold the cargo that would be inside of it. And so really, this was a well ventilated rectangular barge and then of course the pitch or the tar around it would prevent water from seeping into the ark and according to answers in genesis um, which uses a different length for the cubit they use a cubit of uh, 20.4 inches they say that the ark was 510 feet long 85 feet wide and 51 feet high And so that's using a cubit of 20.4 inches. Uh, But most commentators and and translations, you'll see that a cubit of 18 inches is used. And so uh, with 18 inches, the arc would be 450 feet long, 75 feet wide and 45 feet high. And then the window in verse 16 was literally a place of light, probably an opening for light and air, which extended, it says, the, the, the full length of the arc. And I like what it, what it says in the New Manners and Customs of the Bible book about the size of this ark. It says, if the average size animal was the size of a sheep, it means that the ark could hold over 125,000 sheep. And so, of course, we'll get into more about that in, in Genesis 7. 
But in verses 18 through 21 in Genesis 6, it says, But I will establish my covenant or formal agreement with you, Noah, and you shall go into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, your sons' wives with you, and of every living thing of all flesh you shall bring two of every sort into the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female, of the birds after their kind, of animals after their kind, and of every creeping thing of the earth after its kind. Two of every kind will come to you to keep them alive. He, so he, don't have, he doesn't have to search for them. They'll come to him. And you shall take for yourself of all food that is eaten and you shall gather it for yourself and it shall be food for you and for them. And so in regard to this covenant, God will explain that more in greater detail um, in Genesis 8 through 20, all the way through Genesis nine seventeen. So you'll see that there. But, but speaking of these animals, of the clean animals, and it doesn't say it here, it'll say it in Genesis 7, they was to take with him seven pairs. And some of those animals will be used for sacrifices, the scriptures tell us. Genesis 8.20 and Genesis 9.3. And so when it comes to these people and creatures that live on the land, we see that God is about to restart the population on the earth by using eight people. That's Noah, his wife, his three sons, and his three daughter-in-laws. He's going to use eight people in these animals that get on the ark to reboot the earth, so to speak, to reboot the population. And what I see from that, when I take from that, and it's a blessing, is that even now God desires to restart or reboot, I should say, our lives. He desires that because right now we have this old nature. We're we're running running around without Christ with this sin nature and we're giving into it, just living in sin. But God desires to restart or reboot our lives. As the scriptures tell us that if any man is in Christ, he is a new creation. All things have passed away. The old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. And I just wonder today, is there anybody who needs a rebooting, so to speak, in your lives? In verse 22, Genesis 6, thus Noah did according to all that God commanded him. So he did. And so we see here that Noah was obedient to the Lord. Noah stood out. He was obedient even before God gave him instructions to build the ark. Because remember that Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. So he was obedient. He pleased the Lord. He was a man of faith. So he, he just stood out. And even after receiving instructions to build the ark, Noah still stood out. He was a standout. And so during these years, these 120 years that he was building the ark, the ark uh, Noah preached. Second Peter 2.5 uh, tells us that he was a preacher of righteousness. And so he, he preached to people during this time. God was using him during this time, not only to build the ark, but to preach to people. But only seven other people will be saved. And of course, that would be people from his family. And so this obedience that we see from Noah, it, it actually demonstrated his faith because at that point it had not rained. But yet and still he was obedient. It says, by faith, Noah, being divinely warned of things not yet seen, he moved with godly fear, prepared an ark for the saving of his household by which he condemned the world and he became heir of the righteousness, which is according to faith. 
And so he's in the hall of faith. That's what we call it in Hebrews 11. And so he hadn't seen it rain before. He hasn't experienced what God is talking about before, but yet and still he obeyed and he built that ark and he preached. He was a preacher of righteousness. Once again, 2 Peter 2, 5, he stood out. And so for you saints, for you brothers and sisters in Christ, as the worship team takes the stage, I want to encourage you to dare to stand out. Dare to be a standout. To, to obey God even if it's not popular. Because it's not always popular. Like in Philippians chapter 2 verses 12 through 16. It says, therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. Do all things without complaining and disputing. That you may become blameless, right? Like Noah, right? That you may be blameless, that there's nothing in your life that people could look at and say, look how sinful that person is. Look at the sin in their lives. That you may become blameless and harmless, children of God without fault, in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast, holding on tight to the word of life that so that I may rejoice in the day of Christ that I have not run in vain or labored in vain. And so there, you see, it's pretty much telling you to be like Noah, be, be blameless, to, to stand out that even in a perverse and crooked generation, continue to live for the Lord, continue to, to keep preaching, be it a preacher of righteousness, preaching about how to be righteous with God, how to have a right standing with God through faith or trust in Christ. So keep on preaching, keep sharing the gospel with people, keep passing out those Bible tracts, keep continuing to serve the Lord if he has called you to build a type of art, your personal art, maybe not a literal art, but maybe it's the type of ministry that God wants you to be involved in. Maybe there's some type of calling upon your life. I would encourage you that even when it's not popular, that even in the crooked and perverse generation, even you're smack dab in the middle of evil in your community to continue to serve the Lord, to continue to share the gospel, to continue to live for him, to continue to give glory to God, to continue Continue to pray with people, to continue to pray for people, to continue to study the word of God, to continue to allow the Holy Spirit to, to use you and to help you to fulfill the calling that he has placed upon your life, even in the midst of a perverse or crooked generation. So in other words, I'm telling you to be like Noah, be blameless. In other words, be a standout or in other words, I'll say this to be someone that God can count on to do his will, even in the midst of an evil generation? Are you willing to take upon yourselves that challenge? Amen. 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 Well, let's have communion. <laughs> let's have communion. So, Father, we thank you for your word. Help us, Lord, to take upon that challenge and to be obedient to you, even when people are looking at us like we're crazy or thinking we're crazy because we're going to stick to the word. And we refuse to, to, to cast your word away. They're going to call us names. It's okay. Help us to be resolute. And Lord, as we 
are about to partake of communion, I pray that you bless the elements, the bread, the cracker that represents the body of Christ that has been broken for us, the blood that has been shed for us, represented by the juice in the cup. And as we partake, we do it in remembrance of Jesus and his sacrifice. And as often as we do it, the scriptures tell us, as often as we do it, we, we're remembering you. It's like we're preaching a sermon about Jesus' death. And so forgive us, Lord, of any sin. If there's any sin in our lives, reveal it to us that we may confess it. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this teaching from God's Word. If you have any questions, would like to request prayer, or want more information about our church and how you can experience the love and hope of Jesus Christ in your life, please visit calvaryqueencreek.org.